Hello, everyone, and welcome to Think Change, a podcast from ODI where we discuss some of the world's most pressing global issues with a variety of experts and commentators. I'm your host, Sara Pantuliano, ODI's chief executive. Today, we're delving into the international aftershocks following the news of what seems the likely overturning of Roe v. Wade in the United States. So for those who are not familiar with it, Roe v. Wade is essentially the legal case that protected the right to abortion at the federal level. That was back in 1973. You know, the original Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision argued that the right to abortion was covered by the constitutional right to privacy and basically legalized access. But I'm sure a number of you have seen, which, you know, there's been a leak of a new draft decision, which has shown the intent to return the question of the right um, of access, you know, to access abortion healthcare to the states. And this is really a sign that this interpretation of the constitution, you know, this interpretation of uh, um, the bodily autonomy um, that has sort of shaped, you know, generations of women for 50 years is now up for debate. So today we'll be diving into what the ending the federally protected and constitutional right to abortion means for people outside of the USA borders. We'll touch a little bit on what, what it means within the USA as well, but particularly you know, the, the global reverberations of uh, a potentially deeply damaging you know, decision. And this news has really, you know, galvanized the grassroots everywhere. You know, I think many feminists really recognize the very real threat, the reversal of abortion law in what is one of the world's largest and most powerful democracies actually, you know, poses to their own lives in other countries, you know, really um, potentially threatening very hard-worn rights. So as the road debate in the US is really sending these shockwaves you know, through the Americas and the rest of the world, I'm joined by an amazing group of women today who will share their views on how global feminists in particular can fight back to safeguard existing abortion rights and prevent you know, further backsliding. We'll also discuss how international actors can navigate this new context, you know, how they can redouble their efforts to support a you know, comprehensive sexual and reproductive justice agenda to really show that they care about rooting gains that collectively we have made over the last decades. So let me introduce our guests. I'm really thrilled to be joined by two leading feminist voices um, who will help us you know, connect the dots you know, for what this means for reproductive justice globally and what can be done to really elevate the work of activists who are already defending against rollbacks on abortion rights. So let me first introduce Françoise Mudute. Uh, Françoise is an internationally recognized pan-African feminist leader from Cameroon. She's currently the CEO of the African Women's Development Fund, but she's also the founder of Ayala, a platform for and by African feminists about their lived experiences. It's so great to have you back with us, Francoise, and, and really continue the conversations that we started during our Unlocking Feminist um, activi Activist Dialogue that you know, took place, I think, back in February. Really, thank you so much for joining us today, and, and congratulations on your recent appointment as Young Global Leader uh, by the World Economic Forum. I think it's such a well-deserved recognition. Thank you so much. 
Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Our second guest is Dr. Anu Kumar. Anu is a longtime abortion activist and really a preeminent voice on sexual and reproductive rights. She's based in the US and is currently the president and CEO of IPASS. Um, IPASS is an organization that works across multiple continents, um, advancing reproductive justice, particularly by expanding access to abortion and contraception. Um, welcome, Anu. Thank you so much for bringing your insights and experience to this conversation. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I look forward to the conversation. Thanks. And, and I'm very pleased to be joined by my colleague, Megan Daigle. Um, Megan is a, a senior research fellow in our humanitarian um, policy group, where she leads uh, our work on gender, particularly in conflict and humanitarian crisis. Um, Megan has recently led research on access to abortion in conflict settings which is so very relevant to our discussion today. But she also supports the work that we do on the UNFPA high-level commission that is focused on sexual and reproductive health and rights, um, of which I serve as a commissioner. Megan, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Sarah. I'm really excited for the conversation. Right, well, let's get started then. So in the wake of the leak of what is, I think, a really profoundly concerning decision you know, to overturn uh, women's freedoms to have control over their own bodies. Um, Anu, maybe I'll first come to you to help you know, sketch out the context, really help us get up to speed with what is happening over there. And then you know, we'll delve into the wider implications for feminist movements and you know, our reproductive justice demands around the world. So if you don't mind, Anu, please, please just give us a brief outline of what Roe v. Wade is from where you are and what has been happening. Yeah, sure, uh, sure, Sarah. Um, so Roe v. Wade is a, a 1973 Supreme Court decision um, that made abortion safe and legal um, and a constitutional right in the United States. However, Congress, the U.S. Congress, never secured that right in statute and instead relied on the Supreme Court uh, and this particular precedent for nearly five decades now. So if Roe v. Wade is overturned, the legality of abortion will be left to the states. And abortion could be banned, as it has been effectively in Texas, um, or severely restricted in half of the United States. So, you know, about 26 states are poised to ban abortion completely uh, in this country. So the leaked Supreme Court decision um, signals the intent of the court to overturn Roe. And this is, you know, a, a radical and, you know, frankly, uh, rights denying move. If the Supreme Court's intention becomes a reality, millions of people in the United States will be denied their fundamental rights, the right to health care, the right to bodily autonomy, the right to freedom. The impact is most likely and going to be felt, uh, well, it's going to be felt most acutely by black and brown people and indigenous people, as well as people with disabilities, people in rural areas, young people, um, immigrants, members of the LGBTQI community, and those that are just struggling to make ends meet. So it's really going to have a disproportionate impact on people who are sort of marginalized or left out of mainstream society uh, and or are poor. Wow, there is so much at stake there. Um, Francoise, can I ask what your immediate reaction was, you know, particularly from your view as a Pan-African feminist? I think my first reaction was really, how can we ever get a break here? 
because we think we've secured some rights and, it, and we just have to keep pushing again and again. And it feels like while you're pushing on the right, something on the left is backsliding. And so I really felt that level of exhaustion. And I remember specifically it was a, it was a morning because it was the day after because of the time difference. It was the first thing I, the first news I heard and I was like, oh, that was my first reaction. We have to do so much work. We have to do so much work. And just as Anu, I also thought about how this is going to affect, who is going to be affect, affected first by this. And it's going to be black women, brown women, marginalized women. And I thought, wow, we just have so much. That got me, definitely got me out of bed. Yeah, absolutely. And Anu, I can't imagine what your reaction would have been as you know the leader of an international reproductive justice organization. Uh, yeah, it was pretty horrifying. And it, it's an odd, it was odd because, you know, those of us who have been following these issues, as I have now for decades, I mean, we knew this was coming, right? We've been signaling for a long time that this right was on the brink of being taken away. Um, and we knew it, particularly when, um, you know, President Trump had the opportunity to put three Supreme Court justices on the bench. Um, it was absolutely clear. And yet, when it happened, it was still a shock, a tremendous shock. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we were still, you know, kind of reeling with what this means. And, you know, for IPASS, for us, we know exactly what this means because we have worked for decades in countries where that do ban abortion. Um, and so, you know, we, we know what this looks like. We know that women and pregnant people are going to be terrified. They're going to be confused about the law, that care is going to be driven underground, that providers are going to be denounced by their colleagues and their patients and could stop providing, you know, services and care. You know, it's, it's for 50 years, IPAS has been doing this work and we know that abortion bans don't stop abortions. Um, what they do and what the Supreme Court is primed to do is rob millions of people of their reproductive rights and their ability to make decisions about their future. Absolutely. So spot on. Um, Megan, building on what Anu is saying, what do you think this draft decision and you know, its content say about you know, where we are globally um, in the fight for reproductive justice? I mean, I think it highlights the criticality, not just of a focus on reproductive health, but on reproductive rights and beyond that on reproductive justice, because this isn't really about delivery of health services. And, you know, maybe maybe controversially, it's not just about any one person's choice either, although that really matters. It's about how women and other pregnant people, and especially, as Anu said, racialized and impoverished pregnant people, are treated by institutions and systems and structures. Um, globally, I think it's indicative of where we are in terms of anti-feminist backlash and anti-gender ideology backlash and reactionary politics in general. Um, we're seeing a lot of positioning of any challenge to uh, gender norms and um, as threatening. And in response, we're seeing efforts to claw back power in the face of feminist progress over the last few decades. And, you know, I think a lot of people think of gender norms as like a micro level interpersonal thing about your relationships or the way you live your life. But they're also systemic and institutional and re repealing Roe is really illustrative of that institutional structures that are not representative of social consensus, even or public opinion. Um, I can say from my work in Colombia that 
it's critically important to pay attention to the overlaps and linkages too between the political discourses that that we're seeing circulating right now. I mean, in Colombia, anti-abortion sentiments surged alongside ideas about peace building after conflict and a nation building. Um, abortion was really intertwined with that. And in the USA, we're seeing moves like this sitting alongside outcries against critical race theory and you know, promotion of white replacement theory. And these aren't coincidences. They fuel each other. And you know, we can look also at Eastern Europe, Poland and other places. Uh, where right-wing reactionary politics brings with it restrictive and regressive notions of family, womanhood, motherhood, gender roles, etc. And, you know, the tone is admittedly dire. Alito references Matthew Hale quite heav heavily, who's a 16th century jurist who viewed women as property and often as witches. And, like, is this what passes for precedent? But the language of the decision is, is like I said, dire, but I take courage from the protests and from the global feminist movements who are ready to respond and for us to learn from. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, you know, in, in 2022, um, after you know, generations of work and activism that has really taken place over the last 50 years globally, um, it, it is actually feminist movements that we are expecting to, you know, continue to lead the fight. Um, maybe I'll ask uh, Francois first and then um, you, and you know, what are feminists talking about when they campaign on this issue and how that, how may that change now in the, uh, in the wake of what is happening in the US? Yes, I think what we're talking about is uh, justice. It's not um, just about health, as Mika just said, it's not just about access. Are we talking about justice? We're talking about our rights to live because um, I think Anna said earlier, uh, this is not going to uh, get people to change their mind about abortions. It's just going to give them fewer opportunities to uh, exercise that choice safely. So what we're talking about is this is, we're no longer in the activism around contraception we're talking about our rights we're talking about our lives and i, I was actually uh, after that first sentiment i had heartened to hear especially younger feminists saying we will not negotiate this you know this is about our justice this is about our rights um and also i was quite um, encouraged to see how we immediately without a bit realized this is not just about the, the us this is not about the US, this is a global thing. It's going to, we will feel the impact of this very quickly in the policies, in the conversations, you know, online, and we will feel them in our bodies, in our rights, and this may kill us. So there was a lot of fear, um, and I think in that, in that language, but also that fear is not a fear that paralyzes, uh, it's a, a fear that galvanized. And so, yes, this is, for me, the kind of conversations I've been part of. Love it. I fear the galvanizes, absolutely. Hannah, what's your reaction to this? Yeah, I want to go back to a point that uh, Megan made uh, about the global nature of this. And, you know, she, she connected reproductive justice to um, racial justice, which I think is really important. Uh, and also, and she didn't use this term, but it's really also connected to white supremacy. 
Um, and this is, I think, uh, something that we need to really be cognizant of. And this is not just isolated to the United States. It's really important to realize that the anti-rights movement is a global movement. And the U.S. is going to be joining a handful of autocratic and anti-democratic countries. For example, Poland. Um, that is, uh, you know, actively anti-democratic uh, and anti-rights and, and, you know, harasses LGBTQ individuals and women who seek abortions. Indeed, Poland has had uh, women die from uh, abortions, you know, recently in the last year or two. So this is not, you know, in the, in the distant past. Um, but the other point to really keep in mind, particularly as we think about this globally, is that the, the, the trend towards liberalization is unmistakable. Um, you know, since the year 2000, 37 countries have liberalized abortion laws. And so what's happening in the United States is completely out of the norm. And the countries that I'm talking about are, you know, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ireland, Argentina, Benin, just most recently. You know, this is... Uh, this is not a, a, a unique or unusual thing. Countries all over the world are liberalizing abortion. Why are they doing it? They're doing it because they recognize abortion as healthcare. As Francoise says, it is something that can kill and does kill uh, women and girls. Um, and they also recognize it as fundamental to bodily autonomy. And bodily autonomy is at the core here when we talk about reproductive justice. You know, bodily autonomy is what defines reproductive justice. So, you know, I just wanted to contextualize that, you know, this is this is part of a of a of a larger, broader picture. So when we think about what we can do as American feminists or what American feminists can do to change the situation here, I think we have to do a, a few things. One, we have to really think about how abortion um, fits into broader issues, including racial justice, environmental justice, economic justice, um, because you know, abortion is not lived as a singular event. Um, it's part and parcel of a person's life, and that life is complex. Um, and then we also need to think as, as a feminist movement about how we can learn from other movements around the world. Um, and the most recent you know, and most uh, visible example has been the Latin American feminist movement, which has seen you know, change after change from, you know, in terms of liberalization of abortion laws. Um, and that has been a really interesting movement. Um, and I'm just going to take another couple minutes to explain what I find so powerful about that movement, if, if I could. I think what they've done so successfully is that they've had mobilizations on the streets, right? So the kind of the mobilizations that we've seen in the US in the last week or two weeks, people out on the street really protesting this, and they've had feminists in positions and corridors of power. This is really important. The women in the streets in La Calle are also talking to the women and the feminists that can make policy change, that can move the economic needle. And they're talking to each other to really make things real. I think this is really an important aspect of mobilization and feminism in general. We have to have both. The feminists on the street, the young people that Francoise is talking about, they push the envelope. They tell us, no, you should not negotiate this. It's not okay. And the women that are sitting there doing the negotiating get strength from that. 
I couldn't agree more. That's actually something that we have uh, um, been researching and sort of working on directly at ODI. You know, we've been leading research on how social movements transform gender norms, you know, through our Align platform. Um, we actually released a report not long ago on mobilizing for change that really shows how women's social movements push forward progress um, on gender violence and reproductive justice. Um, actually, on that, um, maybe I'll ask you, Francois, what, what do you think can be done at the grassroots level and international level you know, to ensure that we really stop the back, this backsliding? I think there's a, first of all, I, I completely agree with what Anna was saying about how, how on the one hand, this is not, uh, this development is not in line with where the world is going. But I, I also am very concerned that this might be an excuse for, especially in Africa. We, I mean, we've had the Maputo Protocol uh, being um, 30 years after Roe v. Wade, you know, adopted. Yes, it wasn't the full spectrum of abortion rights on the table, but at least it's progress. And and you've mentioned Bina, you've mentioned Kenya, you know, all those countries are moving forward, but what does it take for them to go back? You know, maybe it takes just an example that, well, you know, if we don't, if we don't have to be so accountable to USAID anymore, maybe we can do whatever we want. So I'm very concerned about that. And so I think when we think about backsliding, I think we need to look at each of us doing our parts. I think uh, what uh, this example from Latin America of bringing together the forces in the streets and in power, um, but that takes time, you know, to, to build that. So what can we do now? I think the first thing that we should do is make sure that the funding uh, that uh, needs to be available to for feminist movements mobilization around this uh, is available and is made available quickly in a way that doesn't push uh, us to for, you know, jump through too many hoops because this is an emergency and we have to do this work now. I think the second thing that we have to do is keep learning from each other, connecting. It's quite hard for us to do it in a pandemic because you know, as a women's movement, we move. Like we go there, we sit down, we talk. And I think, but we need to find the ways. We need to find the ways to connect. And I think we need to find ways to not just connect on a strategic point of view, but also in a more intimate, because this is hard. I mean, a lot of us cried, a lot of us were in pain, a lot of us are scared for our lives, for our sister's life, for our daughter's life. And I think we need to find the ways to really, if I, I can say it in, in a few words, just come together, align, but also care for each other. Absolutely. Um, Megan, Francois has uh, alluded to an important uh, issue there, you know, the implications of um, uh, these new domestic rollbacks on abortion rights for the US that can actually have for you know their policies abroad, particularly USAID, um, because of course what happens in the US very rarely stays in the US. So what do you think these implications you know could be and, and how should other actors respond? I think everything Francoise and Anya have said about, about movement building, about supporting the work that's already happening in, in every setting. I mean, wherever you go, there are women and there are feminists working on this and finding ways to support them and and take a lead from them and their priorities is is so key i mean in terms of aid work and funding i mean the global gag rule is is gone but it's still with us and the helms amendment is still with us and 
I mean, I think one of the things I'm noticing is that we really need to be an alert, alert to the potential for these rules to also even like go beyond what they actually say to overdetermine what people, um, you know, are able to do in that, you know, people won't even bother proposing research or projects that might raise red flags and effectively wind up kind of doing the work of anti-abortion voices for them um, because it makes people scared to try and to put forward ideas. And, and even more subtly, I mean, there's, there's a real potential for stratification of the, the reproductive rights agenda in that, you know, people can fund or support particular parts and pieces of that agenda, um, like contraception, and by doing that undermine a more complete vision of, of what reproductive justice would, would look like, um, you know, putting all their money into contraception and then saying that there's no need for safe abortion care or a diverting focus and thus only supporting the kinds of care that people are comfortable with or think are less controversial or less political. Um, and I think there's a lot of cases around the world where we can see that safe abortion care can be kind of the canary in the mine shaft. It's the first thing to go in the face of opposition. And that's something I think we have to be very alert to and, and work hard to not let that happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. I was reflecting on you know um, what I've been hearing in the conversation about how much work and you know in some ways how many gains the global feminist um, movement has been able to um, to achieve despite um, all odds. Uh, I know you know one curiosity. What, what do you think American feminists could learn from uh, the global feminist movement? <laughs> Well, as I mentioned, they have. A, I think we have a lot to learn. I think American feminists could learn of the power of uh, broad-based uh, mobilization. Um, so, you know, multi-issue, multi-sectoral. Uh, the term I think that's we, that we've come to use most regularly is intersectional feminism. Um, it matters. You know, it, it really matters. Um, I think American feminists also really need to think deeply about the strategy that they've pursued almost single-mindedly for the last two decades of litigation and electoral politics. Um, I think those two strategies, frankly, are very limited in its uh, in their return on investment, as we are seeing right now. We have, um, you know, we have in the United States, frankly, a situation of minority rule. Um, we don't have, you know, the, the vast majority of Americans support access to safe abortion services, and yet our elected officials and our Supreme Court, um, you know, six out of three of these these Supreme Court members are are poised to overturn this. Um, this is minority rule. Um, we also have a situation where um, a religious minority is actually dictating what is appropriate for, what, what is public policy in this country. And when I say a religious minority, I'm not even referring to mainstream Catholics, although that is an issue. Amy Coney Barrett belongs to a radical Catholic sect um, who I think are literally called handmaidens to Christ. So, you know, this is a radical minority rule uh, of a very large and extremely important country. Um, so what do American feminists have to learn? Well, I think we need to learn from uh, from those who have been working under dictatorships. And it, to me, it's no coincidence that the Latin American feminists have emerged in such a powerful way because they have worked against dictators. 
from Argentina to Chile to Brazil. This is the this is the the, the, the social milieu that they that they emerge from. You know, this is why human rights is so salient and important and real to Latin American feminists. Um, and I think this is what we need to bring to the U.S. But we also need to learn from other feminist movements around the world. I think there are many lessons learned. You know, IPASS works globally. For 50 years, we have been in many ways very successful in changing abortion laws and then implementing those laws. But we didn't do that by ourselves. No, by absolute no means that we do that by ourselves. We have worked in partnership over and over and over again. So I think that's really, really important uh, that it's not, in fact, about you as an institution or you as a person, but you have to kind of think about the broad-based approach and litigation and electoral politics are limited when you actually are trying to change um, social norms. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, those are fundamental points. Um, makes me also think about how you know you resource these movements to and, and actually maybe Francois is a question you know for you given your leadership at an institution like AWDF that you know works directly with funding feminist um, movements. What can we do right now, you know, and, and how should we get more resources, you know, to, to these feminists for this emergency? So I think uh, there's something that I have come to say a bit too often, unfortunately, is that we really need to fund feminist movements like we want them to win. Something about patriarchy that I have to recognize is that patriarchy is super well organized, super nimble, super creative, and it's, it is very effective in oppressing us. So we need to fund uh, women's rights movements, feminist movements, to get to that same level of agility. So you can't say you want to transform mindsets, you want to transform, to acquire justice and fund for projects and not trust people to strengthen their movements. So I feel like there's something about funding like you really, really want us to prevail. And I think this is what we try to do at AWDF. And to be honest, it's not easy because you know that funding comes with these constraints. And so we have to, we try to absorb most of them, but we have to pass on some of the et cetera. But I just feel like we need to fund in a way that first recognizes the, um, the local context. And so work with the intermediary, uh, funders like women's funds, feminist funds, just make sure that our funding is as close as possible to what is actually needed on the ground. And the last thing I say about funding is that it's not just um, it's not just the, the advocacy, it's not just the, the, the provision of services and, and information, it's also to recognize that the same difficulties that exist within the public and society also exists within feminist movements. So we need to also fund feminist movements to give them the space, the headspace, the safety to, to be able to connect and also see where the tensions within the movement around this issue of abortion rights, because not everybody agrees, you know, and not everybody has the level of comfort, let me just say, to address this in the way that it needs to happen. So also those spaces for movement building really need to, need to happen. And I think all of this needs to come together and all of this needs to be done very quickly. So you have to really, let's just say that we want to put our money where our heart is. Yeah, this is such a fundamental point because actually this, uh, you know, 
anti-rights global movement, as Anu um, put it, is rooted in the patriarchy, as you say, Francoise, is not just super well organized, it's also super well funded. And a lot of research is bringing that out, actually. Um, and so we are um, facing, you know, sort of a, a, a system almost out there that is incredibly well organized, coordinated, you know, sort of has some very um, reactionary intentions and uh, uh, has a lot of resources, you know, to use to advance their aims. But they're also quite clever in using narratives. And on that, actually, you know, I want to ask you, Anu, you know, what one issue around that is, is really um, around the stigma that, you know, gets associated um, with abortion. You know, what, what do you think this continues to be such a sticking point? Yeah, I think stigma is very real uh, and it's manifest in so many different ways. So, um, you know, stigma really, especially a stigma related to abortion, comes from a very deep concern about what it means to be a woman. Um, and what it means to be a woman in most people's minds and most cultures is around motherhood. Um, and so when you challenge that notion of motherhood, that no, you know, either I don't want to be a mother ever or I don't want to be a mother right now, um, and that you don't accept um, motherhood as an automatic inevitable outcome of pregnancy uh, and sex, then you are deeply undermining uh, existing power and gender relationships. Um, so at the core, stigma is really, to me, about female sexuality and the fear of sexuality um, that, that, is, is, that is present in, in nearly every society. Now, the stigma is really manifest in multiple ways. Megan talked about how, you know, the policies are impacted. Absolutely, policies are impacted by abortion stigma. The gag rule is one of them. The Helms Amendment, which has been in place since 1973 and is overinterpreted, as Megan is saying, uh, as a tendency of happening, is overinterpreted as a complete ban on abortion care. It's not written that way, but it has been interpreted that way. And so we, and we see also with the gag rule, which kind of comes in and out, uh, depending on who's in, in office, that many organizations simply prefer not to deal with abortion because it's just too problematic. Um, so, you know, so we do have self-stigma in addition to policy level stigma. And then, uh, and then we have stigma that's manifest at the community level and at institutional levels. So hospitals, um, you know, organizations that may not want to actually be associated with groups working on the topic of abortion. I mean, it's no coincidence that IPAS does not have US government money, does not actually even have Gates Foundation. We have, we have some amount of money from the Gates Foundation for contraception but not for abortion care. So, you know, I think both what Francoise has been saying and, and, and Megan is that if you're actually serious about women's rights, you can't pick and choose. You know, you know human rights are universal and they're indivisible. That's how they work. And so you can't cherry pick which rights you are more comfortable with and which rights you are less comfortable with. And I think that is a really important point for funders, for policymakers, for people in general to kind of get, uh, get their heads around. That we have to overcome this stigma and we have to think about abortion as part of a broader array of rights that human beings are entitled to. Such fundamental point. Francois, I see you want to come in on this. 
Yes, absolutely. I think the question of stigma and, and Anu, thanks for putting it so brilliantly around the notion of motherhood. I also think that uh, in the context that I know quite well in, in West Africa, there's also the, the weight of religion. Um, and I will never forget this conversation I had while I was doing some research in the Sahel. And I was meeting with a group of women's rights activists uh, who were working with the law and who were telling me how difficult the one issue that they couldn't really deal with was abortion rights. And they told me the story of a 13-year-old who came uh, pregnant because uh, of incest and rape. And they, because of the circumstances, this child would have had access because the law permitted it for abortion, but they wouldn't bring themselves to tell her. So they advised her instead to go in and have, you know, go to some convent and have a child and put the child up for, abort for adoption. And I'm thinking, you know, this is also part of our movement because like this stigma is deep in, you know, like in the way we, 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 we think affects the way we work. But I'm so encouraged though to see that in the past few weeks, we've seen a lot of feminists pushing against it and saying, I am not ashamed. And we've seen a lot of women take, taking the brave risk of saying, this is my story of abortion and I don't have shame. And I think this is, not everybody can afford the, to do that, but I think for those who can, this has enormous power. Such brilliant and powerful points. And actually, uh, you know, this conversation is, um, it is really um, uh, inspiring because it brings together a lot of things that we have um, discussed and captured in the report that the High Level Commission put out last November, you know, that was entitled No Exceptions, No Exclusions, that really makes the case for sexual reproductive justice is not a health issue, it's about it's a rights issue, and everything we've you know heard in today's conversation reiterates, you know, what the commission is advocating for and really the importance of you know understanding you know the intersectional demands that are the foundation of, of reproductive justice. I feel we could go on all day, but unfortunately, we're pretty much at time. So let me just ask each um, one of you for just one last really quick 30 second, you know, sort of thoughts uh, to conclude the conversations. Um, Anu, maybe I'll start with you. Sure. Thank you so much for having having this conversation. Yeah, I just wanted to make a point about how um, we this this is this is not an intractable problem uh, that, you know, we, we can this can be dealt with. And as I you know, said, there, there has been tremendous progress. And I, I had the privilege a few weeks ago of being in Mexico City. Um, Mexico City liberalized its abortion law in 2007. Um, so I was there for the 15th anniversary of the liberal of liberal abortion care in Mexico City, um, and you know it it was amazing to see uh, that before 2007, abortion was a crime throughout Mexico, and wealthy women would travel to the U.S. for a safe procedure, but for many women, the only choice that they had was to resort to an abortion with unsafe methods, uh, putting their lives at risk. But you know, since the liberalization of abortion. Uh, 250,000 people have received abortion care with zero complications for free in both the public and private sectors in Mexico City. There's been an 84% decline in emergency complications. I mean, it's just, and and the event that I went to was, you know, co-hosted by the, the Ministry of Health of Mexico City, the public sector. 
And, it, you know, abortion was talked about openly and it was embraced as part of healthcare and part of women's rights. So I just offer that example as, um, as a way of saying that, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. We can, we can fix this problem. Uh, it, it, it can be rectified. We just have to kind of get, uh, get to work. Absolutely, Francoise. Yes, what I would say is that we're talking about abortion rights, but it's not just about abortion rights. I think it's about bodily autonomy and that manifests in so many other issues. And so I think when uh, one of the words that Anu used earlier is, is intersectionality, and I think we need to keep that in mind because bodily autonomy affects not just our rights to a, an abortion, but our rights to own our sexuality and, our, and really own our bodies. And for me, because of that, I really think that the solution is not happening without feminist movements. I think feminist movements are the solution because we are the ones who realize how much everything is linked and all of our work is done in the same way. So for me, my last point will be, we are the solution. And that's a good thing because we are here and we are not scared and we're not ashamed. And we are here and we're pushing hard. So I do have hope, even though I started with fear, but I do end with hope. We certainly are here and we are pushing hard. Megan, your last thought. Honestly, listening to this conversation, it makes me think that, you know, the original formulation of reproductive justice is still the best. You know, it was offered by African-American feminists who are focused on, on three things, having the space and the resources and the support to have a baby if you want one, to not have a baby if you don't, and to raise any children you have in a safe and healthy and happy environment. And I think, like Francois said, if you add to that something around enjoying a safe, happy, pleasurable sexuality, however you understand that, that's a pretty good picture. And reproductive justice means understanding that this is an intersectional issue, requires an intersectional analysis. But wherever you are and whatever the circumstances, there are local women and feminists who are already doing this work. Um, they don't need to be displaced or their work duplicated. So, you know, cut out the middleman and work directly with them. And yeah. Wow. I think we've managed to cover a lot of ground in this conversation today. But, you know, when who means is this dialogue over? Um, abortion, bodily autonomy is a global justice issue that should matter to everyone, not just to feminists, not just to male advocates. You know, standing in solidarity with reproductive justice movements. Um, what came out for me clearly from these conversations is, you know, that we are witnessing growing anti-democratic trends. They are, I think, increasingly steeped in narratives of tradition, and they are, you know, sort of using patriarchal norms um, to deprive women or of their rights. Um, but sexual and reproductive health rights are, are democratic rights. Um, democratic rights, though, as we have seen, are by no means guaranteed. So, you know, they clearly must be fought for and defended by everyone, everywhere, all the time. That's a fight we've got forward, but as we've heard, you know, words of encouragement, words of hope, words of building on the many success we've already made, we've already achieved, and, uh, you know, the strengths of the collective global feminist movements has been at the heart of um, these successes. But thank you again to our amazing guests, Anu, Francoise, Megan, you know, for sharing what I think has been an incredibly rich, insightful, you know, thought-provoking conversations. Um, this was another episode of ODI um, Think Change. So thank you, of course, to our listeners. 
I really hope that you know this powerful conversation has given you useful insights, but also helped inspire you to consider how to help fight the current backlash um, against you know, hard-won women's rights. Um, remember to subscribe to the show, um, share your feedback with us, tweet the episode, um, tag at ODI underscore global. We are on all your favorite podcast providers. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>